0: What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. 483 anti trans bills have been introduced in legislatures across the country in an attempt to restrict medical access and public expression of trans life, and what some advocates say is an attempt to erase trans existence from the public's view. To discuss this morning, we are joined by Adam Rhodes. Adam is a queer first-generation Cuban-American journalist whose journalism focuses on public policy, the justice system, and our nation's most vulnerable people. His latest piece for the appeal is called Anti-Trans Bills Flood States and Centrally Coordinated Attack on Transgender Existence. Good morning, Adam. Welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, good morning. It's so good to be here again.
0: We're also joined by Imani Gandhi, editor at large for Rewire News Group. She also co-hosts the podcast Boom Lawyered. Good morning, Imani, and welcome to Law and Disorder for the first time. Ah, uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to have you on the show, Adam. I'm going to start with you. We're going to do a little bit of big picture. Um, and and Amani, feel free to, to jump in as well. Adam, what is the difference between this legislative session and what we've seen in previous years really escalating, as you point out in your article in 2016 with the Trump administration?
1: So, um, you know, it, the, what has characterized this legislative session is, uh, number one, the volume of these bills, the fact that there are nearly 500 bills introduced just since January 1st. So it's not since like those legislative sessions began last year, since January 1st, almost 500 bills have been introduced. And these bills are a lot, uh, frankly, a lot more draconian, a lot more um, invasive than other bills have been. These bills, you know, criminalize uh, parents uh, sending their kid to a drag show or, Uh, a parent uh, uh, affirming their kids' gender identity through just, like, basic gender-affirming care. Um, So it's both, like, the severity and the volume that is really characterizing this legislative session.
0: Imani, anything you'd like to add there?
2: I was thinking about this for a piece that I'm writing, thinking about the, the, the bathroom panic that occurred in around 2016, 2017. And I recall at the time, you know, the NCAA pulled the the tournament from North Carolina as a result of that bathroom bill. And then here we are, what, seven years later, and the NCAA Final Four is taking place in Texas, which is one of the worst places, not only for, for trans people, but also for just pregnant people and women and LGBTQ people in general. So I think what's really shocking and alarming to me is the way in which the conversation and the zeitgeist has changed and and declined so dramatically that an organization like the NCAA doesn't feel like it has to act in any way in order to sort of stand up and say, yeah, we have trans athletes in our, or we have trans people that are going to be in your state, and they're not safe there, so we're going to go to a state that is more safe. So I find that fascinating in terms of just the political zeitgeist.
0: Do you, do you think that's because they don't feel public pressure in the same way? As, is, is public sentiment swaying in the wrong direction? I think... Part of it, I mean, what I find really
2: alarming
0: is the sort
2: of um, the rise of the gender-critical movement in this country. I think is tracking in a really alarming and dangerous way the gender-critical movement in the U.K. And so I think there just seems to be more of a stomach for oppressing the most vulnerable people in the population right now. And I'm not sure why that is. I don't know if it is um, a backlash against the against the Trump years or people I I don't know what it is I wish I did know what it was but it is a really alarming uh, trajectory Um, and ultimately I do think that they are going to find themselves on the wrong side of history but that doesn't really do a whole lot now for the trans kids who are being told in places like Florida and Tennessee and myriad other states that you are not permitted to obtain gender-affirming care and telling parents you know, in states that purport to be so concerned about parental rights, telling parents, it's child abuse, for example, if you get gender affirming care for your child, as they're trying to do in Texas and Wyoming. So I I wish I kind of understood what the the Zeitgeist switch, how it came about, but it is marked, it's marked to me. Mm
0: One more follow-up question for you, Imani, and then Adam, I'll give you a chance to walk uh, way in, and then I want to move into some of the specific pieces of legislation. Just for my l- listeners, Imani, would define uh, the gender-critical movement and actually do some compare-contrast with what happened in the UK.
2: Right. So the gender-critical movement is sort of the, the new name for what used to be called TERFs, right? And TERFs, that is an acronym that stands for Trans-Exclusionary Radical Feminists, which is a word that they just de- used to describe themselves but once people who were opposed to their anti-trans ideology began to use it to describe them, they decided that it was a slur. And so I think they just sort of rebranded as gender critical, which, you know, I've been very hesitant to use that terminology, but having read and heard from trans people who really would like to remove the term feminism at all from this ideology. I've been starting Mm -hmm. to use this sort of gender-critical moniker. But it's essentially people who don't believe that trans women are women, who believe that, you know, people need to use bathrooms that align with the sex that they were assigned at birth, people who insist on misgendering and deadnaming trans people, people who are just essentially have decided that, you know, they're going to get online on social media every day and harass and, and sort of attack vulnerable trans people simply for
0: existing. Adam, anything to weigh in there?
1: Yeah, I think uh, all of those are really great points. You know, um, I think what was most telling to me about, you know, the gender critical uh, movement evolution in the UK is, you know, like the recent murder of Brianna Gay, like the young trans girl, and the fact that like the, there were still incredibly, you know, gender critical sympathetic uh, journalists like covering her murder uh, without the weight and respect that it deserves like the UK government uh, refused to amend her death certificate to list her um, her name and her gender and it was just like um, you know like Imani said it's just an evolution of this and I think um, what gives me pause about the evolution from like the 2016 bathroom bills to where we are now is so I saw a, bit, a little bit of conversation about this online, actually. And it's really mostly about, like, the way these bills are described. I think a lot of times, like, conservative legislators have won a lot of traction just by saying, like, oh, we're really concerned about, like, irreversible surgeries and things like that, as opposed to, you know, like, just being blank and it was like, we don't want trans people to get gender-affirming care. These surgeries have, like, a 1% regret, rate, right? So um, it is, I think, also, um, you know, both the rise of the gender-critical movement in the U.S., and I think it's just, like, unfortunately, some really savvy political operatives who have found a way to describe these transphobic bills in ways that um, obfuscate their true intent.
0: Yeah, that's actually where what was in my head is the savviness of some of the messaging, you know, as, uh, as a comms person, and particularly the utilization of, you know, phrases like, we're protecting children, right? Um mm-hmm children pull on people's heartstrings, right? And when Uh the American population spends about 20 seconds looking at a news headline and and not reading much more, um, I I, I think that messaging has gone a long way. Imani, your thoughts?
2: I think that's correct. Um, I I think this whole idea of calling anyone who's LGBTQ a groomer, anyone who cross-dresses for any reason a groomer, I mean, I guess Mrs. Doubtfire and Mulan are groomers now. I mean, it's just this sort of... (laughs) this rhetoric that is being amped up to make it seem as if, you know, trans people or drag queens, which are not the same thing, are somehow targeting children for what I'm not sure, for becoming trans, for cross-dressing. Meanwhile, you know, and I'm, I'm still a little bit uncomfortable with the sort of rhetoric, but there are accounts on Twitter, for example, that will point to news articles about, well, here's a pastor that was caught with um, child sex abuse materials, or here's a pastor who was caught, mm. you know, assaulting children, and then the people will say another pastor, another Christian, not a drag queen. And I'm uncomfortable even having that not a drag queen sort of tacked onto the onto the end of that statement because it's never a drag queen, right? It tends to be people who are religious. It tends to be parents who are so concerned about grooming are sending their kids to be altar boys, altar boys and acolytes with priests who are essentially don't know where they came from, don't know if they've been moved around from different parishes. So I find it really interesting that this concern for children doesn't manifest in a way that would actually help children, right? Because people don't want to think about where the threat is actually coming from. And it's coming from inside the house, inside, you know, houses of worship. It's coming from inside people's houses where adults are, right? It's very um, similar to the satanic panic of the 80s, right? People wanting to talk Mm. about how there were these, these, you know, groups of Satanists that were abusing children, well, when really what was happening is these children were being abused in their own homes. So I think by focusing on drag queens and trans people as groomers, it's a way to deflect from what the actual problem is.
1: Mm -hmm. Adam? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's all uh, incredibly correct and apt. Like, Um, I mean you said it best like I there is no uh, like drag queen that is out there uh, like grooming children and like to groom them to what to like wear a dress to be happy like to like (laughs) sing and lip sing to a song like I don't understand what a drag queen could reasonably groom somebody to do and then um, you know I think on the other end of that spectrum like these bills are um, it's that specific phrase like protecting children because I think trans activists have said since the outside of these bills that these bills have life and death consequences for trans people, particularly vulnerable trans youth. We know from studies released by the Trevor Project, uh, which is a really uh, important um, LGBTQ like suicide prevention hotline, that these bills are are significantly harming and even just the specter of these bills are hurting trans kids mental health you know like trans kids will self-harm because of this trans kids will try to kill themselves because of this and if republican legislators actually cared about protecting kids they would be cementing access to this care that has bind that is number one supported by every major medical association and has demonstrative proof that it is um, essential to the well-being and health of a child.
0: All right, Adam, I want to walk through some of the bills you mentioned in your article. And Amani, please yeah. let me know if you want to weigh in on any of these or have additional bills folks should know about. So let's start with North Dakota and the bill introduced that would ban agencies that receive public funding from referring to any person by pronouns that don't correspond to their sex to, as determined at birth.
1: Yeah, that one uh, was a pretty standout one. I think uh, that uh, bill kind of uh, gained a lot of notoriety online because the legislator said that you had to use uh, pronouns that match somebody's, like, DNA. And it would come with, like, a $1,500 fine. And it's, like, there's no way to enforce that. It's just political gamesmanship at the most basic level. It's a legislator who is using trans people to score political points Um, And unfortunately, you know, like maybe not as uh, backwards, but there are a lot of bills around the country that are introduced without even a fundamental understanding of what trans-affirming care is. And I think this is just another example.
0: Moni, anything to add? Yeah, I just
2: wanted to add that that's what's so striking to me about all of this is people keep talking about gender-affirming care as if they're giving 12-year-olds pop surgery with zero, you know, with zero sort of... um, Interaction with doctors and psychiatrists and people who are there mm-hmm. to help with gender dysphoria, and I think what's really distressing about the ways in which um, you know this sort of UK movement has morphed into a movement here is that they've managed to grab people who otherwise are relatively progressive. They've managed to sort of infiltrate that movement, and that we have this whole host of journalists and pur- and purported leftists who are just quote unquote asking questions but they're not asking the right questions. They're not interrogating the right the right things. They're not looking for the right information. They're talking about, you know, puberty blockers and hormones as if doctors are just handing them out willy-nilly. And we know that's not the case. But when you make these sorts of statements and people don't understand what it's really like, because, for example, they don't have time to figure it out, or they're just living their lives and they're hearing about puberty blockers and hormones from Fox News or Glenn Greenwald or Jesse Single, and it's just, really distressing the way that they've been managed to infiltrate people who otherwise should be progressive. They for, they, they've they sort of encouraged them to ask these questions. And when you're asking those really questions, those sorts of questions, they're not questions that are good faith questions because the answers are readily available, right? You can literally go on Google and and look at the standards of care from WPATH or the, uh, the American Pediatric Association and realize what it is that's actually happening, realize that kids have to go through a lot of, Therapy and consultations before they're even allowed to do these things. So I just mm-hmm. think it's, I think it's just a mean. They, these are mean attacks on the most vulnerable people, and I find it incredibly mm-hmm. distressing.
0: And not only does the do the does the public not understand, but Adam, as you point in point out in your article, the legislators don't understand either. Talk to us about Montana and the legislator that introduced a trans health care ban um, and didn't understand what the term intersex means.
1: Yeah, so this is actually, I uh, do want to give a shout out to Kate Sawson at the 19th, who did an incredible article about this, like actually just last week, that a lot of these uh, bills that would restrict uh, gender-affirming care for minors or for people under the age of 18 actually have specific carve-outs to allow these surgeries to be performed on intersex uh, kids, and intersex people are people who are born with both male and female sex characteristics, Um, The statistic that I'm most familiar with is the amount of intersex people in the U.S. is similar to the amount of redheads, Um, so that just kind of gives you a sense of the scope, but uh, Mm. while um, Republican legislators don't want to uh, green light best practice Uh, gender-affirming care, the surgeries that they want to be able to perform on intersex infants have been, um, or intersex children and people under the age of 18, have been uh, spoken out against, or like the United Nations have come out against this. Um, Multiple uh, former U.S. uh, surgeons general have come out against this care. And essentially what these surgeries are is it's, they're oftentimes mostly cosmetic, and it's when um, a child is born with both male and female sex characteristics and doctors. Uh, it's primarily almost always doctors that push this kind of surgery. They essentially tell parents, like, we need to decide. You need to decide if you're going to raise a boy or a girl. And, you know, that comes with a host of problems. Number one, um, if the person grows up to not identify or not uh, be the gender that you have then decided on this child and creates a host of uh, mental anguish, uh, medicalized trauma, there's um a host of problems associated with these bills and again i think it's really stark that the legislators want to block best practice medical care but then want to green light care that has come under international outrage
0: Imani,
2: yeah and i just just to add a legal standpoint too and i think that's where you start to get into equal protection problems right because you're allowing certain you know, you're allowing the, the, the people who ha- who are either trans or intersex, you're allowing intersex people to get treatment that you're not allowing trans people to get. You're disallowing trans people from getting treatment that other cis people, cisgender people might need for whatever reason. So I just I think that we are entering an era where it's going to be really interesting from a legal standpoint what happens when it comes to, to trans people and intersex people. Because by, for my money, these are, catac- these are suspect classes in, in insofar as these are people who have immutable characteristics. These are people who don't have the political power to, to um, promote their own well-being in the political process. And I don't see how being trans is any different than being a woman or being black or having any other immutable characteristic that the court has already said, you know, we're going to look at laws that target you using a higher standard of scrutiny. And the fact that we don't have that level, we we haven't had that conversation at a Supreme court level, you know, we could have had that conversation six, seven years ago, but we haven't. And so now we're here trying to deal with these sorts of, these sorts of medical questions and legal questions without a framework under
1: which to do it.
0: Adam, talk to us about what's happening in Oklahoma.
1: Um, So Oklahoma is essentially the most anti-trans state in the country right now. Take that quote from Amara Jones at Translash Media. But essentially, Oklahoma has become a terrifying hotbed for this kind of legislation. Um, And, you know, just like in every state, essentially, that these bills are introduced in, you know, it's... Uh, the real race is that like trans people in those states are number one going to be highly criminalized and number two that they're going to uh, be out of options you know I think from the early days of Greg Abbott's uh, crusade against uh, trans kids and I think in 2021 you heard like parents say like I, ha- I might have to leave the state I do not have the resources to do this but like I have to protect my child um, and so Oklahoma is just a particular hotbed for this issue.
0: Adam, how are more liberal states and legislators fighting back?
1: Yeah, um, so thankfully, there are um, some state legislatures that have come out in strong support for trans people. Um, You know, I am based in Illinois, and our governor signed legislation that would um, prevent uh, state law enforcement from uh, kind of uh, issuing subpoenas and arresting people if they uh, are criminalized in other states new york has done something similar california has cemented the access uh to gender affirming care um uh, governor gavin newsom signed that bill uh late last year um and then montana actually just recently passed a measure that would expand the state's medicaid program to cover gender affirming care um so expanding it even further so there are some states who thankfully have seen the moment that we are in politically and or just, you know, on a human rights level and say, like, no, we need to extend this care. We need to make sure that the trans people who live in our state or who come to our state from uh, states that are highly uh, dangerous to them are protected and cared for and safe and then can live happy, successful lives.
0: And I'd like you both to weigh in on this next question. Yeah. Um... What do we need to understand historically in terms of this country weaponizing the legal system against queer and trans communities? Iman, I will start with you.
2: Um, I'm going to let Adam hit the uh, historical question because I want to bring okay. up something that's more recent, and that is the okay. use of private uh, of private enforcement as a way to attack um basically policies we don't like right we saw it with Texas and SB8 the abortion bill where they basically said the state is not going to be involved in enforcing this, we're going to confer standing onto anyone in the country who may feel some kind of way about abortion bills. You mm-hmm. can go ahead and pat ta- and snitch on someone, and if you win this lawsuit, you get a ten thousand dollar bounty. We're seeing Republicans starting to do that when it comes to anti-trans legislation, right? Texas, yep. I believe, now has a bounty hunter provision for drag shows, right? So if you go out and you see someone who's not dressed the way they're quote unquote supposed to be, and maybe interacting with children at like a you know a children drag time story hour or something of that nature. It allows just any random person to file a lawsuit, and that makes it difficult for advocates who would like to bring a lawsuit saying, you know, this law is unconstitutional. Texas has made it impossible to find anyone to sue. So they are really sort of upending the way that litigation works. They're upending the way that legislation is drafted. I mean, I can't think of any other situation where a state would say, you know what, we're going to be out of the enforcement business and we're going to let the public enforce our laws. I mean, it's just really bizarre. So what mm-hmm. I find really distressing is the way that people like Jonathan Mitchell, who's the architect of this sort of law, are, are trying to figure out ways to finagle the legal system. And when those cases get to the Supreme Court, like the SB8 case got to the Supreme Court, and this is the highest court in the land, and these justices said, well, gee whiz, we don't know what to do with these kinds of laws. We've never seen anything like this. Well, who am I supposed to ask? You're the highest court of the land. If you can't figure out what's going on with these new mechanisms of, of enforcement that are enacted in order to oppress people and to use the public to snitch on each other in furtherance of that, then who is supposed to figure it out? So I'm really concerned about the ways in which the rule of law specifically has become basically irrelevant when it comes to attacking trans people and LGBTQ people. Or
0: LGBTQ <laughs> Adam, why don't you weigh in on that and then draw a line for us, please, from past to present.
1: Yeah, actually, Amani, um, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that came up in, frankly, uh, a stunning number of bills that I looked at is that private right of action that, like, um, any injured individual can sue a drag performer or a doctor or a parent or really whoever um, and, like, get that $10,000, $5,000 payout. Um, And like you said, it puts... Um, activists and their supporters in, like, a weird legal limbo in that, like, how do I fight a law when I can't actually, like, use the legal mechanisms that I'm supposed to do to be able to push back on this? Um, so about the historical context, the best, best thing to do is to Um, you know, frankly, listen to uh, our elders in the community and our experts. Unfortunately, um, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera are not around anymore, but I I look to them as um, examples of, like, number one, what life looks like when queerness is criminalized on that level and also, like, how to um, push back against it. Um, The Just some materials that I have read that really have helped cement uh, my understanding of this are a book, um, The Women's House of Detention by Hugh Ryan, uh, Queer Injustice by Joey Mogul, Andrea Ritchie, um, and there was one, uh, The Deviance War is another new one. Um, they paint a really clear picture that going back, you know, to the 30s, 40s, 50s of the myriad ways people, of queer people were criminalizing the United States, you know, in... Many times, are in uh, times in American history, queer people have been seen as like a national security threat. Um, that uh, the term "sexual psychopath" uh, was uh, overly weaponized against queer people that uh, just like. Uh, allegations of prostitution or sex work were used to um, accuse lesbians of uh, obscenity. The fact that you couldn't send uh, any reference to queerness in the mail or you'd be arrested for obscenity is a whole um, other story. So, you know, there are myriad and uh, oftentimes intermingling ways that the criminal legal system has uh, tried to stamp out queer people. And I think those are the best places that I would look to understand that historical context.
0: Thank you, Adam. This is for, for both of y'all. Um, I, I've been really focused on the fact that we are entering into the season of the presidential race um, and remembering uh, with a lot of anxiety, right, the, the uptick of mm-hmm. violence. Um, that happened for queer folks, for black folks, brown folks, I mean, right. It was, it was pretty horrific. And we've seen that violence remain steady, even though, um, that dude isn't in the office anymore, but, um, he, between him and Rick DeSantis, there's sure to be a lot of this anti-trans rhetoric, um, inside of the presidential elections. And I'm just wondering for you both, wh- what do you think that this will mean for the next two years and, and how this issue is going to play out on a national stage?
2: Um, For me, I hope that it means that people on the progressive left understand that this idea that both sides are the same and that voting doesn't matter is, I mean, it hasn't been true for years. I mean, I'm in the abortion rights space, and I've been screaming about abortion and how abortion was going to go. Abortion rights were going to be criminalized for a decade, and they were. And now we're at the point where they're literally trying to criminalize people's existence. And so my concern is that we're going to move into a presidential cycle where it may be two candidates that no one's crazy about, and instead we end up having all these side conversations about who's going to vote for the Green Party and the third party, and I absolutely would love to have more than a two-party system, but we have the system that we have, and given the attacks on trans people, I think it is incumbent upon anyone who considers themselves an ally to not fall into these traps of both sides are the same, because as a matter of fact, they are not the same when it comes to these issues. And I just really, that makes me the most nervous because I saw what happened in 2016, with people thinking, Mm -hmm. oh, he's never gonna win, Hillary has it in the bag. Mm -hmm. And I don't want, and I think people have already forgotten how horrifying that presidency was, how horrifying that election cycle was. And I really Mm -hmm. would like people to remember that and to remember that we're voting for trans people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I think, uh, frankly, my first reaction, uh, you know, as a queer non-binary person is just, like, abject fear. I, like, can't uh, say anything that, like, I um, know that Ron DeSantis um, and Donald Trump are going to say horrible, awful, um, inaccurate, uh, just inflammatory abusive things about trans people. Um, So I am stealing myself just, like, on a personal level for that. But then I think, you know, we need to prepare... Uh, we need to be prepared, you know, as journalists, uh, just speaking for myself, to be able to push back like very firmly on this kind of rhetoric. It's something that the industry hasn't done very good job at, um, you know, to put it mildly. But I think this moment we're in right now is crucial for trans people. You know, like Amani said, we're voting for trans people right now. Um, I think it's going to be a very ugly election cycle, but I also think it will be an eye-opening one, I will say.
0: Agreed. All right. I, I've run over time for this segment, but I've got one more question. It's for Imani, but Adam, you may have yeah. uh, some things to say about it too. Um, Imani, what kind of counter organizing led by queer and trans folks are we seeing on the ground? And what are the opportunities for intersectional struggles, say, like with the reproductive rights movement or the movement to defend Black life?
2: I mean, the reason why I love reproductive justice is it's because it's an umbrella that encompasses everything, right? It encompasses a parent's right to live in a state where they can get gender-affirming care for their kid because the third tenet of reproductive justice is the right to raise your children in a healthy and safe environment. And if you're raising a trans kid or if you're raising a non-binary kid, in a state that is hostile to trans and non-binary people, then that is an infringement on your right to reproductive justice, on your right to raise your family the way that you want to. So, you know, I, I love talking about RJ because it really covers everything from voting to the environment to trans issues. And I think the more that as a as a the more the reproductive rights movement begins to move away from that rights that legal right framework to a human rights reproductive justice framework, I think the better off we're all going to be.
0: Uh-oh, you cut out there for the last... Did you just repeat that last sentence, Simone?
2: Oh, I, I just was saying that the, the that we'll all be better off, that we're all going to be better off the more that we move away from the dominant um, reproductive rights, kind of white women-led movement into a movement that has mm-hmm. been led by trans people, queer people, a lot of Southern black women on the ground who are doing, um, who are doing a lot of work um, in the abortion space and also in the trans rights space, because as I said, they are very, very much connected
0: mm mm-hmm. adam any any thoughts and and make and these will be your final thoughts so anything else I haven't asked you that you want to get out there
1: yeah not totally like Amani just said these these are all interconnected issues it's uh no um it's no coincidence that uh there is an epidemic of violence against black and brown trans people as we are seeing these bills proliferate around the country. So uh, like Imani said, you know, the fight for trans liberation is absolutely linked to the fight for reproductive justice, the fight for black lives, the fight uh, for disability justice. All of these fights are interconnected.
0: All right, Adam, we're gonna move on to our next segment now. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Adam Rhodes is a queer first-generation Cuban-American journalist whose journalism focuses on public policy, the justice system, and our nation's most vulnerable people. His latest piece for The Appeal is called "Anti-Trans Bills Flood States in Centrally Coordinated Attack on Transgender Existence." That takes us to 8:39 and a half in the morning here on Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We're going to continue our coverage of a spate of anti-humanity legislation. Uh, now looking at anti-abortion laws that continue to sweep across the country. For those of you, joining us we are speaking with amani gandhi editor at large for rewire news group she also co-hosts the podcast boom lawyered um amani actually i want to start like on a personal tip um okay i'm in two, 2016 i'm uh, so, so I'll, I'll start 2016 um uh, my daughter and i had just left standing rock and we were staying at the hotel uh getting ready to fly out and watching the election returns come in and you know, there's that moment uh, where you—it's clear who the winner is going to be—and that happened. We knew the orange dude was was going to be the president of this country, and my daughter had fallen asleep on my chest, and I was looking at the TV, and all I could think was, she might live in a world where she cannot access abortion, or if she doesn't have health insurance, reproductive health care, and I just sobbed, like I sobbed for two hours. And then it didn't happen right away, right? But now here we are, seven years later. I think that's the right math. And it living through this attack on our reproductive rights, and it just my, it makes me cry pretty regularly, and terrified about what's next on the horizon, particularly if we end up with a Republican president uh, in the White House. I just your. Personal re- reaction or response to what is happening across this country?
2: I mean, my reaction, I just, I hate to say I told you so, not you personally, but just I told you so, right? I've been doing this work yeah. at Rewired News Group for 10 years. And when I first started doing the work in 2011, 2012, we were more concerned about trying to get personhood ballots off of, um, personhood measures off the ballots in places like. Colorado and Mississippi. And we were winning. I mean, the abortion rights movement was making headway. Moving into the 2016 election, abortion rights advocates really um, targeted Hillary Clinton in terms of getting her to agree that the Hyde Amendment needed to go. The Hyde Amendment is that that rider that's attached to the budget every year that says there's no public funding for abortion. So, I mean, we were at the point where we could have had a president that would have made it, made it so that poor people could get public funding for abortion, right? And here we are instead, seven years later, after you know, that guy, he just passed the federal judiciary, he flipped the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, one of the most liberal circuit courts of appeals for decades, he flipped it. So now we are in a situation where all of these Trump judges have infected the federal judiciary and they don't care about the rule of law. They care about control, they care about religion, they care about this sort of white nationalist, fascist movement that has been ongoing for years now, and it is alarming because I don't have kids. And so it makes it, it makes it a little bit easier for me to live in this country and not have to worry about the fact that, you know, I have children who are not seen as full people, right? Anyone who is of, is of reproductive age is not a full person. We are not citizens full citizens in this country. And in fact, there was a ruling in Oklahoma State Court last week um, where the Oklahoma State Court said that um, there had to be life-saving exceptions to the abortion ban. But the dissenters, there were four dissenters who talked about, who talked about abortion as if it was necessary to balance the, the interests of the already alive, breathing person who is pregnant and a fetus. And and the the dissenting judges were saying things like, well, who is going to speak for the fetus? And how do we balance the life of the fetus against the life of the person? Well, you don't, right? You favor the life of the person. But we are at a point where that's the conversation that we're having. I'd said for years there's going to come a point where we're either going to have to share human rights with eggs and blastocysts and embryos or eggs and blastocysts and embryos will have more rights than people do more rights than women do more rights than pregnant people do and we're seeing that that's the case right now so i mean you're right to be upset and you're right to be concerned for your daughter because you you know the back the 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 quickness with which we have devolved is
1: Mm -hmm.
2: alarming even to me a little bit and i was expecting this to happen i just didn't expect the sort of gaslighting that's going on right this idea that States are banning abortion left and right, and then when doctors who are now rightfully scared that some action that they take with respect to a person's pregnancy could land them in jail because abortion is a felony, so they have to wait to have a conversation with the hospital administrators and the hospital general counsel to determine whether a person who is septic and really sick in the ICU somewhere can get the abortion care that they need in order to live. So, you know, we're just, we've, we've devolved, we've, we've regressed back to the times of septic wards in and hospitals and, and women, pregnant people dying and bleeding out because they can't get the care that they need. And anti-choicers, rather than addressing this crisis, would rather blame the doctors and say, well, you know, when a situation is so, so serious that you need to intervene. Well, they don't. And that's part of the problem is they absolutely don't.
0: Yeah, I I literally said, my daughter's getting ready to go to college, and I literally told her, I was like, well, you'll be there at least two years, but depending on who ends up in the White House, we may have to flee this country, Um, because not just reproductive rights, but uh, attack on black life and the escalation of of that and the attack on our humanity in general. Republicans are the face of a lot of these bills, but you've got national organizations that are really pushing the issue. Can you talk to my listeners about Americans United for Life and the National Right to Life Committee?
2: Oh, um, yeah. I mean, Americans United, United for Life and the NLRC, I mean, they are... What's interesting about that movement is the ways in which they decided to go about bringing on the death of Roe, right? I mean, for a long time, what they were looking to do is this sort of incremental chipping away at abortion rights. I mean, they did that through um, trap laws, as you recall, the, the targeted regulation of abortion providers where they would require abortion providers to do truly unnecessary things like make sure that their abortion clinics were retrofitted to be inpatient surgical centers so that you had to have halls that were measured A certain length so that two gurneys could pass by, even though if you're a clinic that's only doling out medication abortion pills, there's no reason to have gurneys passing by whatsoever. There are requirements for HVAC systems. There are requirements that that abortion providers have admitting privileges at local hospitals. And, you know, some of these local hospitals are Catholic hospitals and would refuse to give them admitting privileges. Mm -hmm. Other hospitals know that abortion is so safe that abortion providers aren't going to have enough complications to warrant giving them privileges to make it financially um, uh, sensible to give them admitting privileges. So we're just, we're, we're it, it's just a really distressing period of time for, for all of us to be living in, particularly because of the ways in which, like I said, the, the gaslighting that's going on, this idea that, mm-hmm. um, that national groups like Americans United for Life and National Right to Life Committee don't really want to criminalize pregnant women and pregnant people. What they really want to do is focus on doctors. But while they're focusing on doctors, they're also trying to make it seem as if it's the doctor's fault for not providing the care that they're not even sure that they're able to provide. And then you also have to recognize that, first of all, Americans United for Life is mostly responsible for a lot of the legislation um, that, we, that we saw starting in 2011, moving until 2023, right? They wrote model bills. And they would write these model bills, and it was essentially MADLIB bills, right? They would go to legislators in abortion hostile states, and they would say, here are the bills bills that require you to ban telehealth. Here is a six-week ban. Here's a 15-week ban. Here's a 20-week ban. All you need to do is just fill in the state name and fill in your name, and bing bang, boom, it's Mm -hmm. done. Um, So that's part of the problem with these organizations. Another part of the problem with these organizations is how tied together they are with you know, the January 6th uprising people, the insurrectionists. I mean, there is a reason that we saw a lot of mainstream anti-choice people involved in the January 6th uh, um, coup and the insurrection. And that is because they understand that the only way that they can win is to strip rights from people, right? The only way that organizations like AUL and NLRC and Alliance Defending Freedom and all of these organizations can succeed is if they, is if they obfuscate what they're trying to do And if they make it so that the people who would otherwise vote against these measures are unable to vote. So frankly, I mean, if you want to talk about a big picture, and people may say that I'm being conspiratorial, but part of the reason I do believe that they are trying to make it not just a felony for doctors to provide abortions, but they're moving towards making it a felony for pregnant people, for women to get abortions, is so that once you have that felony on your record, I really do believe we're going to see a a resurgence mm. of pushing to make it so that felons can't vote, right? When I mean, we, saw, we saw a sort of undoing of that policy over the last decade, but if Whew. we if, if states like Florida, for example,
1: can make it that's again so next. that
2: felons can't vote, and mm-hmm. then they criminalize all of the people who are getting abortions, then people can't vote for their own interests. And so I think that's the real problem.
0: I, I had not connected those dots that just made my head explode. Okay, Imani, I only have a, a couple of minutes left, but I do want to talk about Florida, in part because that's where DeSantis is, is, is from. And that's where, you know, if he wins, he's going to take his anti-abortion politics in the White House. But also because since the fall of Roe v. Wade, it's become a hub for abortions, even as it tries to restrict access to abortion more and more. Can you talk about that as well as uh, what the current anti-abortion ledge uh, legislation moving there is? And I've got minutes for you to do that
2: oh goodness yeah i mean florida i think right now there's a 15-week ban in florida that is being litigated so florida is a bit of an access point for that southwest region and so you know and what's interesting is i have a friend who um who has done some polling uh on florida and there's there's this very strange phenomenon where people who even support abortion rights also support desantis and also think that the state of florida is doing a good job so it is and I don't understand why that is or how that is. I mean, I don't understand how it is a person can support abortion, but then also support DeSantis, given as given that he is virulently anti abortion. And generally people who are pro choice don't tend to be into book banning and, you know, the First Amendment violations that we're seeing. So I wish I could tell you. I wish I had an answer for what's going on in Florida. I don't know what that is. But, you know, there is a 15-week ban there, and once that, you know, I don't think a six-week ban is going to pass there, but once a 15-week ban passes, then it's going to be a slippery slope to more restrictive gestational bans, and then it becomes a problem for everyone in that region, and there's going to be another, I mean, there's going to be another sort of abortion migration to maybe states like Colorado or Illinois, I guess it's probably a little bit closer, but yeah, Florida is a very interesting state, and Ron DeSantis is an interesting character, and the people who support him also seem to support abortion rights, which I don't understand. So maybe if I, if I do more research and, and come up with a, an explanation, I can come back and explain to you what that is.
0: We're definitely going to have you back. Uh, 60 seconds talking about the lawsuit moving right now that would limit access to the abortion pill, and the federal judge uh, who has said that, that less advertisement of the hearings will be better, which would impact public notice of what's moving.
2: Yeah, I mean Matt Kasmerick is a Trump appointed judge who is, you know, on the on the cusp of banning mifepristone, uh, which is the first pill in the medication abortion regimen nationwide. And he was chosen specifically by Alliance Defending Freedom because they know that he would be amenable to that sort of to that decision. And I think he knows that what he's about to do is wrong, which is why he tried to hide that secret hearing and tell people from the Biden administration and also, you know, the other litigants in the and the other parties to the litigation, not to talk about this hearing that was happening, but that of course is a first amendment issue, right? I mean, the whole point of making these, these court hearings public is so that there's transparency so that we know what's going on in the courtroom. And the fact that Kazmerick is trying to keep that tamped down should concern a lot of people, it really should. And the fact that he's a Trump judge who, you know, has worked for Christian conservative organizations, who's a friend of the Federalist Society, these are all very worrisome things, but again, Whether or not the FDA has to abide by an order coming out of the Northern District of Texas is another conversation entirely, and I guess we're just going to see what happens when that ruling comes down probably this week or next week.
0: Imani Gandhi, as usual, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive.